Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Windsor Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I am doing so good. This is another one where I've clearly lost my voice from laughing throughout this entire episode. We had one of my closest friends, Hillary, on, and you can find her at SmithSarah79 on Twitter because she was a teacher and had to stay in for kids that might find her incredibly good, but occasionally dirty jokes. She's also a co-host of Help Wanted with Alex DeBranco on Twitch, which you can find at twitch.tv slash helpwanted, PLZ, please, no underscores. She's an artist. She does the artwork for Old Times Apothecary. She's so multi-talented and so incredibly funny. And she came on today to talk about crafts and was just amazing. I had so much fun doing this one. This could have been like a three-hour episode if we were really just like wanting to just continue riffing. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I am so sorry with the amount that I spoke about Michael Keaton. It's going to happen. Like every four to five episodes, most of the time we just cut it out, but we'll leave it in <laughs> this time. No, it was great. We covered, you know, the entire history of crafts, the horrible stuff Hobby Lobby has done. A lot of Michael Keaton pen shops, surprisingly, didn't expect to go there, but we got some stories. This was a great episode. Hey, let's get into it. Let's go. Hillary, thank you so much for coming on today. You have been so busy because you're now the co-host of Help Wanted with Alex DeBranco. Yes. There is a dog immediately in frame. <laughs> this is our best episode already. <laughs> who, I mean, I know Ruka's surprisingly polite, but but wants to be a part of everything. Yeah, she gets that from me. Yeah. <laughs> Help One has been going great. You've been absolutely killing it. You did one of the early episodes and then basically were so good. Alex was just like, can you do this every episode? You had one yesterday with Michael Tannenbaum that I unfortunately couldn't see the whole thing, but you went for like three hours or something. Yeah. I love Michael Tannenbaum he too. He's so great. He's so funny. Yeah. We had him on here. Obviously, you know, I write with him uh, all the time now, but you started this serious artwork, which is going to lead into the craft today. You did the designs for Old Tom's Apothecary, the candle shop, which is like the most adorable plague doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I drew one. He was telling me that he wanted some kind of plague doctor. So I drew one and it ended up looking like a photograph. It was like hyper realistic. And I sent it to him and he, he was trying to be really polite and he was just like, Oh yeah, it looks great. And I was like, do you want me to do like a cartoony one? Terrifying. Yeah. I was like, yeah. do you want me to do a cartoony one? He was like, maybe we could see how that looks. Yeah. <laughs> so I did the little cartoony one and he loves it. He keeps putting it on everything. It makes me so happy. It's fantastic. And the reason we're not using your last name, you're Smith Sarah 79 on social media is you were a teacher and had to stay anonymous. Yeah. So Hillary, first name only. Like Prince or Cher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly like that. Miss Sarah 79, they can go find your social media, see your artwork, commission you when you're reopening commissions. I know you've been busy now, but your stuff has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. That's so kind. I also just want to say you have had the funny person dream of being so good on a podcast that they're just like, well, you have to be the host now. <laughs> like, like, like every person who's ever gone to a concert that knows how to play guitar has always wanted to be the, does anyone out here play guitar kind of person? And like, you did it. You 
fucking did it. That's amazing. That's so funny. I honestly, it started out because Alex, he's so good at that. Like, oh my gosh. And I tell him all the time, like, even if I wasn't your friend, I would think that you were so good at this. But I feel like so often I get so excited about my friends. My opinion isn't worth as much. Because they're just like, that's Hillary. Hillary. So I've said multiple times, it's like, when is one of my best friends in the world? Hillary is one of the other ones where this is one, one of the few times we, we've had one of my really close friends on here. And you're the one I go to when I have something that I need someone to tell me is good. <laughs> I love that. I will say something like that, like I know is crap because I know you'll be honest with me too. But like, if I think it's good and I need to be told, oh my God, you have to send this in immediately. You have to go try and sell it. You're the one I send stuff to. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> oh, that makes me happy. And with all your work, you had a great topic today because you wanted to talk about crafts mm-hmm. and obviously the horrific turn they eventually took. But first, <laughs> what is your experience here? I know you only started drawing recently because you showed me. You said, this is my first thing. And all of us called you a liar yeah. because it was way too good. Oh, I forgot that I'm doing like the recording though. I was going to show you the eye that you drew is still my, the <laughs> lock screen on my phone. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if, it, if it'll keep recording if I press the power button. Hillary drew an eye as like a first attempt. And she was like, is this really good? So I drew an eye as my first attempt <laughs> to show her what this actually looks like for normal people. Trust me for the first time. It's beautiful. I actually tried watercolors the other day and my girlfriend did this thing you do for like four year olds where you're like, is it a giraffe? If <laughs> It's on the fridge. You made the fridge, Andrew. Be proud. Yes, it's your own fridge. Like, yeah, I mean, your tone of voice is comforting, but clearly this is a hurtful question. Andrew, you live such a more fulfilled life than me, by the way. Like, I love that, like, you do all these things. You're like, and now I try watercolors. And I'm just like, oh, I watched the same movie I've seen 30 times last night. We're not the same. Honestly, this is mostly Anna saying, I cannot watch another stand-up special with you. You have to come up with something else for us to do. (laughs) Wait, so y'all did this together as just like a a couple's thing? Yes, it was an adorable couple because she can actually paint. And she makes this beautiful flower. And I'm like, this red blob is a fruit. And now you're going to take her to an open mic where like, like you're just like, what? So was that a joke? Was that a joke you were telling? Yeah. Like in a very comforting voice that lets her know that the question is also mean. Right. So yeah, this, this was my adorable yet clearly feelings hurt weekend. <laughs> also, she did this thing where she's like, oh, but this looks really good if you cut out these parts. And it was like, okay, I don't, I don't need this. <laughs> I'm okay just being bad at art. <laughs> so Hillary, drawing is new for you. You got fantastic so quickly enough that people were buying your work. I mean, Immediately. And not just like friends, because like I would buy something to because like to support you. But you had strangers coming up and like, yes, I want to buy your stuff. What was your craft experience before this? Were you a crafty person? I knit and crochet. I learned how to knit when I was still in high school. And then in my early 20s, I learned how to crochet. I can't say I taught myself. I learned from YouTube videos and I liked bingo a lot. And I was just like, I need to hurry up and do these old people things <laughs> while I'm still like young for it to be quirky. Right. But yeah, I enjoy knitting and crocheting, but crochet goes so much faster. I said one of my few times I've had a best friend on. We have, Pallavi is one of my best friends too. We've had her on. But uh, the beanie that you made, Pallavi, that was so nice that she had to immediately wash for COVID. Yeah. But- <laughs> Yeah, she had to wash my forehead kisses off. <laughs> right, which was like so so sweet. Like, look, I'm going to kiss the inside of the beanie in now because I can't give you one in person. It's like, oh, this is the nicest thing for someone who's having a hard time. And she's like, okay, but it's COVID. So she washes it twice. <laughs> it was like, I don't know if like the intent of kisses can be washed away. <laughs> but if you're going to do it, 
twice is how. <laughs> the part where she said she used holy water, I think, was the... Yes. <laughs> so you have experience here. For me, it was... This was something my mother was very into growing up. In fact, it, most houses, you know, you have an office. She had a room that we called Camp Pam. We had a sign made. That was just all of her craft stuff. So this was something I grew up with. It was abundant. It was never really my thing, but it was also one of those things where it was like, if you say, hey, I need a bead. It's like, oh, cool. I have 7,000 for us to choose from. Recently, when I went down to Florida after my father died and we had to you know, go clean all the stuff and we had still had storage lockers there from when we had moved years ago and there were boxes filled with craft supplies that had not been touched in six years and we could not convince her to get rid of them. Oh, like, no, yeah. <laughs> like, no, but what if all of a sudden I really need to make an incredibly mediocre necklace? Yeah. I need that option at all times. I think I might be your mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I grew up with this. It was always a great thing that we had around that, that she encouraged creativity. It was never like my strong suit, but it was always nice that this was abundant. She always had options. And of course, in my early elementary school years, where she was always the room mom or whatever we had friends over, it was you were the house where you're like, okay, something creative is going to be happening here. So, you know, so I grew up with it despite not being very good at it. When, how about you? So I used to like have a sketchbook I used to draw. And then one day I just stopped doing that. So now like whenever <laughs> I do like try to doodle, like it's, it's just garbage. I'm like, I lost it. I could have been great. Yeah. I could have really been somebody. My wife, however, incredible artist. I have a painting of hers up in our bathroom. She's just like always sketching. She is now an interior designer. She got bored a few weeks ago and she bought a friendship bracelet book. And I'm currently wearing a friendship bracelet she made me. That's adorable. Well, it also sounds like she's trying to like ease me into a divorce. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, this is like, you can call it whatever you want. She could have called this a marriage bracelet. She could have said that this is a love bracelet, but she really stressed the word friendship there. Yeah. And I'm concerned. Strictly friends bracelet. <laughs> she looked me dead in the eyes. It was just like, this friendship bracelet really looks good on you. Aren't we close friends? <laughs> That's a first first husband bracelet. <laughs> <laughs> That's my association with crafts is that it's leading to this very slow divorce proceedings that we got going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least I'm glad we all have a range of experiences to cover it here. So let's get a bit into the history of this to start. So I could not decide where to start this because what do you define as crafts? So I went with the definition of referring to skilled work, making basically anything, but craft is generally discerned from art by it having a purpose other than just appearance. However, that is constantly contradicted when you look into what is defined as craft because it's generally broken down into five types of craft. Textile, which includes any type of craft where you work with fabric, yarn, or surface design. Some examples being knitting, quilting, applique, weaving, dyeing. Friendship bracelets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's perfect textile example. <laughs> paper craft, which is also one kids are introduced to first with construction paper, making things like the hand turkeys. The grown-up version of this is wood and linoleum engraving and other paper crafts like paper mache, calligraphy, paper making. But then there is a whole category known as decorative craft. But that includes furniture making and metalwork, stenciling, stained glass, gilding, spongeware, and basketry. So this is these are decorative but with purpose. But it also includes toy making and other arts. Anything where the final product is a piece of decor but has utility. But then if you look into fashion crafts, it encompasses all the elements of dressing the human body. But that also means it includes jewelry, which I feel like is aesthetic. It's not providing warmth. So I don't know what defines jewelry as 
craft other than art, other than the fact that if you're wearing it and this is contributing to an outfit, which is a contributing to a purpose, then this could be seen more craft-like. Obviously, the lines are murky, but it also has leatherwork, shoes, belts, handbags. Yeah, so if I hung the Mona Lisa from my neck, that's no, <laughs> is it now a craft? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Da Vinci, the famous crafter. <laughs> the famous <laughs> necklace maker, Da Vinci. <laughs> but Da Vinci's weapon work, which was extensive and disturbing, was craft. Mona Lisa art, the things he used to kill thousands of people, craft. Leonardo da Vinci, history's greatest monster. It, look, if you look into da Vinci shit, there's some fucked up stuff. I read the book. Did, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> there was a story, and I doubt about this one being true, it just felt too extreme, where he wanted to see if you could poison someone without the poison possibly being detected. So instead of poisoning the food he gave them, he poisoned the tree that grew the food and then fed them the fruit. And then when they died, he was like, Check that one works, and, <laughs> and it was like you didn't even want to save this for like an enemy. He's like, well, no, if it's if it's an enemy, I can't waste my one opportunity here. So like, just give it to like this regular dude. No, but Da Vinci, a lot of incredible art, a lot of incredible designs. Built the first helicopter that didn't work. Like, I don't know why that's such a big thing. I have also built a helicopter that didn't work. Question: Did all those riddles he left behind to tell us that Jesus had a son were those crafts? <laughs> <laughs> So again, look, this is like, did he make the paper? How well was it written? There are some ridiculous lines here. We should ask Dan Brown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dan Brown, noted historian. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so these fashion crafts, it intersects with other types of crafts since jewelry can be made through metalworking and garments are fabricated by sewing, which can be classified as a textile craft. So fashion crafts involve a variety of materials. But again, the action involved in creating something helps define what the craft is as well as the end result. And then despite all of the preamble saying that craft is different from art because of function. The final category is functional crafts. <laughs> it's an entire grouping. And then they have to like preface this. They say like many of the four other types of craft can also be classified as functional. And it's like, all right, dude, like you made a whole group for this. So then they specify, for example, decorative pottery, like serving platters and utensils is often made with components that are okay for people to eat from. So this strictly defines craft and how at doesn't kill you. <laughs> this is like how like all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles singles or squares. It's that kind of logic. Yeah. <laughs> So this was just this ridiculous categorization that basically ended me in a stage where I felt like it was just a Bob Ross. Anything can be crafts. Yeah. So when I started then looking for earliest example, you also have the issue of this is hard to define. What do you call the earliest? But it's also built out of function. And this also causes an issue because most of the earliest things that were made that could be defined as craft would be made out of organic material, which wouldn't last. So I started looking into clothing first, figuring this is one of our earliest necessary things to create just to survive as a species. So what we, because obviously again, organic material wouldn't survive. It was determined we likely wore clothing at least 170,000 years ago after the second last ice age because we determined that that was when there was an evolutionary split between head lice and clothing lice. <laughs> <laughs> So it was like, okay, enough people are wearing clothing that lice have to evolve to handle it. So clearly we've been doing this for a while. You also have musculature pattern on Neanderthals that suggests they regularly worked with hide preparation. But again, this is going to often, you know, muscular structure. There's a deal that you can determine from bone. But honestly, I feel like a lot of that is guessing. I mean, there's science, but like, you know, air quote science. <laughs> so despite being more evolutionary prepared to handle the cold, some studies suggest that Neanderthals would have needed to be able to cover 80% of their body to survive the harsher winter. We need to cover as much as 90%. But also tools would have been needed to prepare the hides anyway. So 
most craft creation seems to require a previous craft creation to get there in the first place. You have to then make the tools to make the object that you're calling the craft and making tools is craft work. Yeah. So this was a lot of research that just continuously pissed me off. I'm disassociating based on this. This is so chicken egg. Like, why are you doing this to me, Andrew? Okay. But by around 40,000 years ago, we were using needles and awls made out of bone and stone to create sewn fitted clothing. Before this, it was largely draped. So this is a significant period of advancement. But in a different form, just a few years ago, we found a cave drawing in South Africa dating back over 70,000 years, which made it more than 30,000 years older than the previous oldest cave drawing we had ever had. And this was a line segments, a, a six line and three lines. So, you know, not the depiction of animals that is often more appreciated, but still the age is impressive. It was at S that everyone drew yeah. in this. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, my first thing when I read the description was like, this is tic-tac-toe. You're describing (laughs) tic-tac-toe. So the cave drawing should fall into the art category. It was made with red ochre, which didn't require the preparation. This is essentially clay. But it was found in Blamba's cave where objects like shell beads, tools, and engravings can be found dating back 100,000 years. So we have evidence here, again, of craft creation older than the painting, which is appreciated more. And this is largely because it's not organic material. It's going to have a better chance of surviving. This is why in every dig site, they get as much pottery as you possibly can. Pottery survives, even if you only have the shards. That's why a lot of areas are named based on the pottery that they find there, because it helps determine who the people were. And it's significant that this lasted. We can tell enough, you know, even if it's broken, it can be pieced together enough. I did not know that areas were named after the pottery that was found. And yeah. I like that. That's fun. That's a fun thing for me. Not everything has to be a joke. I just sometimes I yeah. just appreciate knowledge. Or yeah, at least for their discerning. It's like, yeah, this is a type of pottery. So these were the type of people that were here. And it's incredible that it's been able to be used as a base for understanding cultures. Can you imagine somebody like back then, like it was just like a hobby. It wasn't even something that they were like doing out of necessity. And they were just like, this looks like shit. And just like, throw it. <laughs> like they buried it. <laughs> <laughs> like every broken pot shard is just this guy really pissed off craftsman. Who's like, <laughs> oh yeah, it's not good enough yet. And now we're like, oh my God, look at these important things. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine like there's an afterlife, you're in it. And like, they find like the piece of art that you're really embarrassed by, like the yeah. worst <laughs> piece of pottery and they're just like naming towns after it and like everyone's just like in awe of it and you're just up there like that's the one that's the fucking one they found I was so much better than that yeah then that's another thing too with those with what survives we're determining skill levels but it's like you're not necessarily finding a lot of pieces to find an average here and before pottery becomes part of a culture there were several conditions that had to be met and first there had to be usable clay available and archaeological sites where the earliest pottery was found were near deposits of readily available clay that could be properly shaped and fired. China has large deposits of a variety of clays, which gave them an advantage in early development of fine pottery. But, you know, a lot of countries have this in a variety of clays. But second, it must be possible to heat the pottery to temperatures that will achieve the transformation from raw clay to ceramic. The issues here was they could potentially get it hot, but for how long was consistently the challenge here. And that really didn't develop to creating fires hot enough to be sustainable until late in development of cultures. So this wouldn't be like some you move somewhere new and you can do this right away. You need an established place to grow this. And third, the pottery has to have available time to prepare. So they have to shape and then fire the clay into pottery. Even after control, humans didn't seem to develop pottery until a sedentary lifestyle was achieved. And it's been hypothesized that pottery was developed only after humans established agriculture, which obviously is what allowed us to settle, which led to permanent settlements. However, we do have a examples existing beyond that. The oldest known pottery is from the Czech Republic and dates to 28,000 BCE, the height of the Ice Age, long before the beginning of agriculture. And this first piece was a Venus
Athena statue, which we've talked about on past episodes, where it's a depiction of women representing love, lust, childbirth, maternity, something of that kind. But I thought it was very interesting that this was found and pottery, but not the bowls and pots that we are typically expected. And the fourth requirement is there just has to be enough need to justify the resources required for its production, which again, I think it's interesting that like this was so hard to get started and to get stabilized, except for like one dude who's like, I found some clay, I'm going to make this hot lady. <laughs> it's going to be a thing. <laughs> that actually makes the most sense. <laughs> Everything else is just like, we need to have a use for it. And this guy just made something he could masturbate too, which yeah. is just like triumph of the human spirit right there. Like yeah. this guy invented crafts just because he couldn't get it anyone to sleep with them. Yeah, they didn't find a statue. They found Ice Age porn. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's what those three lines and six lines, that's what that original, like people were trying, people were doing their best. People were down bad in the Ice Age, Andrew. And we don't talk about that enough. (laughs) I do like, ironically though, like with this skill level, like, yeah, that could attract women. But he's like, but I put all this work into the lady statue. Like, obviously I'm not going to give that up now. That's my thing now. Could you imagine if in like their determination when they're just like, oh, first you have to live in a certain area and you have to like chill the material and like you know they had to fight themselves and not be like and the fifth element is of course you have to be horny enough to want to make crafts like you either have to develop architecture or be ridiculously horny and like those are the two things you need to start entire works of art honestly i like this because it does speak well to the mindset of all of humanity throughout time it's like yeah this is generally how we work well especially because it's like your like agriculture you're hungry or you want to fuck and it's like those are the two like main things driving all of human art. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> so there's a big jump between that first discovery to what we see next. China and Japan shards have been found dating between 12,000, possibly as far back as 18,000 years ago. Though there were remnants found in Junrin Cave in China dating between 19 and 20,000 years ago. The major development that helped so much came between 6,000 and 4,000 BCE with the invention of the wheel in ancient Mesopotamia. And I love this. I know we've talked about this before too, but I thought it was fascinating that we finally invent the wheel, despite most of humans thinking like this was a caveman thing. This was relatively recent and we're like, great, now I can finally make better pots. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you had functional pots to begin with, but this was significant and there were a lot of advancements around this time period. 6500 BCE, textiles were made of flax. This was obviously before cotton was really developed. 6200, we had the first copper smelting process. 5500, we had the oldest faience workshop in Egypt. Egypt, which was a non-clay ceramic made with sintered quartz, and this created like a glass-like substance. But in ancient Egypt, metalsmiths were their most important artisans, making bowls, vases, cups, statues, figurines, even swords and daggers. And the most widely used metal in ancient Egypt was by far gold. According to Herodotus, and from what we've seen from around us today, Egyptian metalsmiths were known as the most skilled artisans in the world, which is a very impressive claim, but also you think like, how far did anybody go? <laughs> like, Herodotus got around a fair amount, but like the world is a big statement. Yeah. It's like the best artisans in this and maybe like four close by towns. <laughs> so 1380 BCE of the first instance of iron working in the Hittite Empire. 200 BCE, there's this huge boom in iron in the Celtic world, manufacturing increased in all aspects from weapons to agricultural items. And there's a lot here that you see in development in Greece and Rome. And there's a lot 
lot of artistic work here that I think is better covered in a full episode on that because each of these had a significant impact on culture. But ultimately, it's like, yeah, we got better at making bowls, making the same thing you're making before. We got sharper at it. So I do want to cover glass. Well, you gotta. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such an insane process for like anybody to figure this out in the first place. And it dates back at least 3,600 years to Mesopotamia. And some claim, though, that they may have just been copies of glass objects from Egypt, which is a regular thing. Somebody found the Mesopotamian. They're like, Egypt probably did it first. Mesopotamia then did it. It was like, hey, guys, I made a thing. (laughs) Basically, Mesopotamia was the internet to Egypt. Andrew, before you get into how glass is actually made, I want to tell you guys how I thought glass was made for the longest time. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) I thought all glass had to be made by sticking metal poles onto a beach and waiting for lightning to strike. (laughs) Because I saw the movie Sweet Home Alabama as a child and was just like, well, that's clearly how all glass is formed. (laughs) It was the exact same thing. Just now, now, I'm I'm finding out now that's not how all glass is made. It was all just lightning and metal poles and then doing sweet kisses. Yeah, and Reese Witherspoon was there. (laughs) (laughs) So please educate us two dum-dums, Andrew. How is glass actually made? So It it is sand. Yes! (laughs) It it is sand heating it to essentially a melting point. And this is also why glass is interesting because it is technically a liquid in that it is constantly moving just at an incredibly slow rate. But yeah, no, this is melting sand and then having to find some way to shape it. And obviously the fragility of this is an issue. Eventually we get into glass blowing, which is incredibly useful in terms of advancement, but also basically it's the same long metal poles that they stuck in the sand in Sweet Home Alabama, but hollow (laughs) and you blow into them. Now you're speaking my language, Andrew. Yeah. (laughs) If there's a Reese Witherspoon rom-com about it, that is how I see the world. Well, it was very cool. And, And the shaping, obviously you're working with some extreme temperatures here, along with same with metalwork, you have to work very quickly, but then you also have the aspect of after certain stages where it's no longer quite as, you know, molten, it quickly becomes fragile. So there's a lot of skill involved to work with this. And because it was a luxury product, earliest known glass objects were beads, which were maybe initially made as accidental byproducts of metalwork, the slag runoff. But this was developed until the disasters that led to the late Bronze Age collapse seemingly put an end to it. This really died out for a while, and it starts developing back up again over time and it has a significant growth in Venice, which it goes back to the Roman Empire when molded glass was used for illumination and bathhouses. And then Venice blended the uh, Roman experience with skills learned from the Byzantine Empire and trade with Asia. And Venice emerged as a prominent glass manufacturing center as early as the 8th century AD. So this was huge for Venice. Also, you have to remember that throughout the next, what, 600 years, Venice is continually to grow as a massive center for trade. It is in the middle of everything. It obviously has water access to, as well as as land access, and it is very wealthy. So Venice is killing it. Venice is doing great. Good job, Venice. (laughs) So by the late 1200s, product of glass object was the city's major industry, so much so that the Glassmakers Guild had specific rules and regulations, the purpose of which was to safeguard the secrets of the trade. It's a Coke recipe. Yeah, (laughs) that that was it. (laughs) This became so important to the area. A 1271 law prohibited importing foreign glass or employment of foreign glass workers, just in the chance any of them was a spy or going to take what they learned back to another country. It's wild. It was, yeah, this was like, guys, this is our whole thing now. We just do glass. (laughs) 
<laughs> an even more radical law was passed in 1291 that laid the groundwork for establishing Murano as a premier glass manufacturing center. It required all furnaces used for glass making be moved from Venice to Murano. And this was supposedly to avoid the risk of fire from the furnaces spreading onto the largely wooden Venice. I mean, it was a swamp. This is built on 10 million trees and then just wood buildings. I still can't get past the fact that Venice exists. When you look into how it was built, it was like, this shouldn't be a thing. It was just people so desperate to get away from enemies. They're like, well, let's build some shit in the swamp because they're not going to want to come here anyway. I just love the fact that in 1291, Venice was just like, hey, this city's in danger of burning down. Let's prevent that. And Chicago didn't figure that shit out for 600 years. <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. So this is what they say, like, oh, yeah, a lot of wood. It's like, OK, but also you're on top of water. Yeah. So it was supposedly to avoid the risk of fire from the furnaces spreading, but it really it was most likely to isolate the craftsmen where they couldn't disclose trade secrets. And this theory is furthered because four years later, they made it illegal for glassmakers to even leave the city. And like this is an extreme law, but also like glassmakers in Venice and Murano were the athletes of today. These guys were superstars. They were rewarded well. They had privilege and social status. Their daughters were allowed to marry into the wealthiest and noblest Venetian families. And because of this, it meant that glassmakers were likely to teach the trade to their children to give them the same, you know, huge advance in society. So this kept the secrets in family, but still created the next generation of craftsmen. So this was really incredibly well thought out. Enough so that, like, nobody's really complaining about not having to leave Murano. <laughs> this was set up well as with strict rules, but giving them enough advancement that like, yeah, we're just going to keep this going forever. Can you imagine being so good at something that they're just like, you are not allowed to leave the city yeah. <laughs> or talk to people. Yeah. Like, I think that I'm funny. I'm not not allowed to leave the state funny. <laughs> I like the idea that they basically miseried an entire city. <laughs> But Venice goes strong for so long. In the 15th century, Angelo Barovier discovered the process for producing clear glass. And this allowed Murano glassmakers to become the only producers of mirrors in all of Europe. Mirrors, I think this is something that's so abundant today. People don't realize how special mirrors were to society. Like you could go your entire life without knowing what you look like, which is an insane thought to have as we do this podcast with me staring at myself yeah. right now. But I think we've discussed this way back in a very early episode too, that when we found swords and valuable items in lakes and ponds, the conclusion that was drawn was that these were sacrificed here because this was one of the few times a person would might be able to see a reflection of the themselves. And thus, this was a holy experience and a place where they could sacrifice to their gods. So like being able to see yourself was significant. And now you have one place that is the only place, an entire continent <laughs> that can allow you to do this. So their value was absolutely huge. Yeah. Thinking narcissism is named after him, but thinking about it now, it's like we all would drown. Everybody <laughs> on Zoom spends the entire meeting looking at their own face. No, I mean, I think the only difference is I'm doing it critically and being like, oh, I <laughs> I, I hate that anybody's seeing this right now. The problem with narcissists is I can see my reflection even on a good day. I think that I look good for one minute. And then after that minute, I'm just like, oh shit, I look too long and I walk away because I find all my flaws immediately. They all start becoming super apparent after that one minute mark. I feel like for me, my immediate response and not understanding the science of this is like, okay, if there's another one of me, we can do so many more bits. I had a, an extreme limitation by not having a comedy partner. <laughs> 
And now I got me and this reflection guy going to kill it. Either way, I'm confident that for some reason I would have drowned. It would have been stupid, but it would have happened. It would have been me trying to kiss my own reflection. I would drown trying to hook up with that hot guy in the water. Look, we covered this with statues too. Like maybe this wasn't like he thinks he's the most beautiful person in the world. Maybe this is just like, you know what? Not a lot of options. I got a guy here. I'm leaning in to kiss. He's leaning in to kiss back because that's how reflections work. We're both into it. Let's go for it. Here's the thing. Actually, I understand Narcissus better now because when I'm looking at my own reflection, I get that one minute. But if I don't know that's me, I'm going to sit there the whole time being like, oh, this guy's kind of like my type. I like this guy. This guy's cool. I'm not going to be critical. I'm not critical of strangers the way I am of myself. I'm going to think that guy is super attractive and I will dunk my head in the lake trying to do just the sweetest of kisses. My other mirror thought, and this is another thing where I'm going to reveal that I'm stupid, is when you went to mirrors and you were talking about like how mirrors are special and everything, I went immediately to, that's so wild because mirrors are so abundant today. How could they have never figured this out? With my second thought being like, if you told me when, make a mirror, I would die. (laughs) I would die. I would never figure it out. If you even gave me a room full of materials and was like, when, make a mirror, I would never figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) I recently, relatively recently made a mirror, but it's way easier than you think. You just get clear glass and it comes in spray paint and you spray it on and when it dries, you turn it around and the other side is a mirror. And that's why if you press your finger up against like glass, that's a mirror, there will be a space in between your finger and your reflection because it's just the backside. The back of the yeah, yeah, it's just the backside that's reflective. Is that how mirrors work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love that when very legitimately did the mind blown. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Andrew, did you know exactly how mirrors worked before this? It was just a very sincere moment. I very much enjoyed it. <laughs> they didn't have spray paint. Maybe I guess they just used like a brush and then I'm like, that's probably not how mirrors have always been made. <laughs> <laughs> this was typically a specific silver backing that was required to actually achieve their reflection. So again, these are an expensive product to make. Then yeah, there was a good deal of specific chemistry that was involved here. So you had a lot of scientists that had to come together for this to happen, which is why before this too, a lot of this was instead polished metal and they could polish metal well enough to get a very good reflection. But for glass mirrors, yes, it required both the clear glass and then the specific silver backing. And yeah, it was a lot that had to work out all at once. And and then Murano got it. So they're like, okay, cool guys. We're just, we don't need, we're just golden. We're just going to keep going with this for a while. Chinese porcelain was really popular among European nobility. So when Murano figured out white glass making porcelain also blew up, it wasn't until the 17th century Murano glass entered this period of gradual decline. And this was largely because Venice lost its power grip on trade routes. It was really important as a major commerce center and monopoly on glass blowing went with it. Obviously, if people are leaving too, they're going to take the skills somewhere more valuable. The resurgence of Murano glass happened along the same time as the rest of crafting as a whole. And again, this still grew for a while. And obviously, a lot to be covered here during different time periods, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Crafting experienced a lot of growth in a lot of different ways. But there's this big downfall when we entered the Industrial Age. Products could be made faster and cheaper, but there was less care and skill in the end results. And another thing is before this time period, so for almost all of human history, no no two man-made objects would be exactly alike. It just couldn't happen. Everything you got was a unique item. And then all of a sudden, the biggest advancement is in ending that. It's we want to make these as uniform as possible because we want to make each one of an equal quality that made sense for the way we we're advancing. But it 
also led to people being like, well, this shit isn't cute anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, have you ever bought like a handmade piece of furniture and then compared it to like the Ikea box version? Yeah. Like it's- <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, no, there's a huge difference. And it's incredible when you get to see the art put into it. So there was an arts and crafts movement. It was this international trend that first started in Britain and then the British Empire, then the rest of Europe and America. And it really initiated in reaction against the perceived impoverishment of the decorative arts and conditions in which they were produced. And I feel like a lot of this is like a bullshit thing of like, oh no, we got to treat our artists better. It's like, no, you want the good art and you're pretending you're doing it to help because you can't say like, I just spent $10 million on this chest. So you got to be like, I'm helping the artist. And I was like, okay, but are you? <laughs> but this really largely grew out of what was then called the Great Exhibition of 1851, which was the first in the series of what would then become the World's Fairs because it was a display of culture and industry. And the public thought everything was essentially tacky. It was excessively ornate and artificial and ignorant of the qualities of the material used before this would be used to enhance the natural qualities of it, to bring out what was best in this individual piece. Same for basically any other material. You're looking to show what it is and what it does best. And obviously with mass production, that's not the goal. So this led to a resurgence in the appreciation of craft, obviously not in the form that it was before. And it slowly grew into more of a hipster thing as well. But it also leads us to where it went wrong. So Hillary, where did crafts go wrong? Is this a test? Did I get it, the answer right? It was the one you gave me, Hobby Lobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, Hobby Lobby. The, specifically the yarn. <laughs> they have uh, this really soft, really great yarn for like 3 or $4 a skein, but you can't buy it anymore because Hobby Lobby is evil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hobby Lobby is so much more evil than you would expect for any place named Hobby Lobby. Yeah. <laughs> It feels like being murdered by a teddy bear. Like if you just search for like Hobby Lobby scandal, it's the number of pages that come up and they're like, guy, you got to narrow this down, guy. We can't do this. If you go to the Wikipedia of Hobby Lobby, more than half of it is the controversy section. They, it's, it's so fucked up. The thing is, I couldn't even pick a worse one. I was familiar with most of the stuff that they did during supporting Trump and trying to stay open during the worst of pandemic. But one of the first ones I came across was that the feed the children, the charity, <laughs> owners sue the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby, for ousting the nonprofit leaders in a hostile. They hostily took over a charity to feed kids. It is so fucked up. For what ends? Right. Like, you're not supposed to be able to make money off of this. It's a charity. But like, if you don't have any interest in feeding kids. That's a bit from succession. Right. That's Cousin Greg suing Greenpeace. Yeah. <laughs> That's just comic book villainy. That, there's no <laughs> purpose to it. And also, like, how set are you in, like, I have too much money to care what anyone thinks about me, <laughs> that I am going to hostily take over a charity? Because there's no, like, oh, this side is still going to think I'm a good person. It's like, yes, you're, you're just a monster here. So Hobby Lobby, this was like 2011, 2012, Hobby Lobby files a lawsuit against the U.S. government for the right to deny contraceptives to employees. Hobby Lobby, extremely right-wing religious company and owners. In in fact, the, again, Green family, the wife of the owner has claimed that she has made her decisions based on God telling her what to do. And I hate that when extreme Christians say this, that's taken like, like, oh, this is a normal thing. She's saying God is speaking to her directly. Yeah. That is a massive (laughs) statement to not give any elaboration on. Like, if you're saying that, I want to like, how did this happen? Did he have to introduce himself? (laughs) Like, you heard a voice and were like, oh, this is God. I'm going to listen to what he tells me to do. And you didn't need proof of that. Or if you did, you should show us that proof because this is fucking batshit. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, you need to be medicated. Nobody's questioning it at all. Son of Sam kills a few people, blames, says his dog told him to do it, and everyone's like, that guy's crazy. <laughs> but this, this woman's over here just being like, God, a few letters off. 
just a, just rearrange them. Yeah. Just told me to do something and everyone's just cool with it. And just like, well, you can't tell her what to do. Those are her beliefs. And it's like, that guy believed the dog was talking to him. It, it's absolutely insane. Like that is a statement that I feel like should concern anybody that hears it. And instead the religious people go like, oh, well, if God's talking to her, we should listen to her. And it was like, you don't want any proof. You don't want anything. You got to go on faith. Yeah. God told me we should get some proof. People won't believe that one though. If you say God came to me and told me that he actually wants us to provide proof of his existence, everyone would be like, well, you're lying. Yeah. But to her over here, her that said like women shouldn't be equal, like that, that was the real God. Yeah. And you know what? It's because everyone's going like, yeah, that does sound like God. That sounds more like God than what you're saying. I think the thing is too, like so many of the things by the people that, that claim they're speaking to God are so fucked up that what they're saying God told them to do. It's like, if you didn't have God as your backing, there's no way you could pretend this is okay. So people are like, well, I want to take their rights away. So what if I say I believe they heard it from God because otherwise I'm just a terrible person. And this is like, again, like yearly scandals. This was 2012. 2013 Hobby Lobby is slammed with anti-Semitism claims after an employee tells a Jewish customer the store doesn't, quote, cater to your people, which like if you've seen their Christmas decorations and their lack of Hanukkah decorations, this is not surprising. Honestly, I love the idea of just like taking all of the Santa prints and turning them into Moses and putting them back. I feel like this would piss Hobby Lobby off more than anything else. <laughs> you would think they would have like some like very shittily made dreidels or yeah. something just to be like, we did it. Equality. Yeah. And this is one actually where the CEO, David Green, actually apologized and said the employee doesn't, you know, speak for us. But it's like, OK, but like everything else you've done says they do. Yeah. Like This is cool that you're not the one that got caught saying it out loud this time. But this is clearly your belief. What if the employee wasn't even like, we don't cater to your people. Yeah. Hobby Lobby is anti-Semitic. <laughs> like what if they, it wasn't, it wasn't them being anti-Semitic. It was them just relaying objective info. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there was no stank on it. Like yeah. look around. You do not see a single star of yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to want to go to Michael's. Because yeah, there's a reason he felt comfortable saying that. Yeah. Right. No, this, this is back. Let's just, just do 2014 now. Uh, Steve Green. <laughs> Again, he tries to evangelize in Oklahoma public schools. There was a new elective high school course in Mustang, Oklahoma, that used a textbook created by the Museum of the Bible and endorsed by Hobby Lobby President C.B. Museum of the Bible, by the way, started by Steve Green. And there was this big outcry, too, because they said, you can't call this a museum. You're just telling people what they should believe. And he's like, well, no, but we have ancient artifacts. We have all of this stuff. We have remnants of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then they're like, they're fake scrolls. <laughs> you commissioned the study that told you they were fake scrolls and you put them in anyway under glass in a display case. And he's like, oh, well, there was a miscommunication. Like it wasn't all of the scrolls. And then they're like, there's more on the document. It was all the scrolls. It was every fucking scroll. Every single one was fake and made like a week ago by some dude in his basement. <laughs> and Steve Green was just like shrug. And he's like, well, you know, that's God for you. So this is the heavy air quote museum <laughs> that tells you what to believe that then released a book to be an optional course in high school that was just again telling you what to believe saying this is historical because a museum made it <laughs> can i just say can you imagine just picture it being so fucking rich that you can make a museum about the thing that you're a fan of 
have them make a book and then demand it be taught in public schools. And all of this makes sense to you because you're so rich that like the world should bend to you in that way. Like imagine if I tomorrow opened up the Michael Keaton Museum of Culture. <laughs> and it's just about the career of Michael Keaton, a fantastic career spanning decades. All right. <laughs> He's going to play Batman in three different decades. So many years apart. I know we just had a McDonald's episode about him playing Ray Kroc, but he's so good doing it. He does everything. He's so fucking good. Imagine my enthusiasm for Michael Keaton. I'm like, we got the original tie he wore in The Founder. We got all the different outfits from Multiplicity with mannequins all standing in a circle and wearing all the different outfits, conveying their different personalities. I'm doing, and then I make a book and I'm just like, look, it's an optional course, but I think high schoolers need to know how great my Michael Keaton was in Beetlejuice <laughs> and that there was an outcry about him playing Batman. People didn't want him to do it, but then the movie came out and guess what was praised? His performance is Batman. He's still regarded as the best Batman to this day. Mr. Mom delivers. And I have so much money that I think this is okay and that the world should do this. That's a level of which I aspire to. This is a perfect analogy for this. It is? It, it is because this guy was so fucking into it being his thing and they found that the Associated Press obtained emails that found the school board had met privately with Green to discuss the addition of the course in an effort to again, quote, get around an Oklahoma law that requires government bodies to be open to the public. Like, again, he said, we're going to use the Bible to teach archaeology, history, and the arts, and like that is the other way. If you want to discuss the Bible in archaeology and history, you can do that because it was a part of those things. But the stuff that happened in the Bible was just stuff they said. (laughs) So, you can't go the other way. But then he put this book in, they put the class in, and they're like, this, it, it's, I love how they, they phrase this because really, the questions, concerns arose over possible intentions to proselytize students. <laughs> it was just about how, like, historically, if you don't believe in God, you go to hell. Like, it was so fucked up. You want to hear something else that's fucked up? Please. In my previous rant, I didn't even mention Birdman and Spotlight, <laughs> two best pictures that he was in. He starred in both and was it fantastic. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Also, okay. the other guys. Oh, don't go chasing water. Waterfalls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. all the same. We got a creep, creep. <laughs> He's perfect in everything. He absolutely is. We're going to do a Michael Keaton episode soon. Uh, <laughs> Please. So after this, in 2014, Supreme Court rules in favor of Hobby Lobby's right to withhold contraception for employees because they're just getting worse and worse. And because of this win, faith leaders send a letter to the White House urging to be exempt from laws prohibiting LGBTQ discrimination. Like, they're cool. We got the win here where we can make people get pregnant. So... Now we want to make sure it's only people that can get pregnant that can work for us. And then what's like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, guys. You got like, you got the sleaziest win possible here. You, you know, this isn't going to work. You're just making yourself look worse. And then here's the one that I can't say the one, all these are so terrible, but the most insane one, because it was just so fucking stupid. The federal prosecutors find Javi Lubbock guilty of smuggling 5,500 biblical artifacts from Iraq. <laughs> Like, obviously, this was a huge thing after the invasion where we did not put any security on the museums. They were raided instantly, and this was horrific. And then they were sold to the worst people out there, Green being one of the best examples of that. So in 2017, federal prosecutors found that they had illegally smuggled rare and stolen artifacts to us by shipping the items in Oklahoma City headquarters in boxes labeled as ceramic tile samples. And they started collecting these antiques in 2009, despite warnings from a property law expert contracted by Hobby Lobby at the time being like, yeah, dude, this shit's stolen. <laughs> you kind of 
didn't know that it's stolen when you're marking it under tiles. Like right. you're not doing that because you think what you're doing is on the up and up. Right. They said, look, these might have been looted from historical sites in Iraq. If you don't determine their heritage, it could break the law. Still, the Greens went ahead anyway. Uh, he traveled to the United Arab Emirates to examine rare Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets. And in December 2010, they purchased 5,500 artifacts for $1.6 billion. And the courts, I was like, dude, this is stolen. This, like, no, you know this. You bought so much. You don't even have, like, one you're hiding in your closet. It's 5,500 pieces. <laughs> like, you are going to get so, so caught. So the court ultimately demanded that Hobby Lobby return the artifacts and pay a fine of $3 million. And it's like, they spent $1.6 billion. The $3 million doesn't matter here. They, like, took out the couch cushions and, like, yeah. just, like, just scrape it all in the bucket. You got to pay the fine. So in 2017, oh, still 2017, this is the next horror. I keep thinking it's going to be next year because how many horrible things can yeah. a person do in a single year? But no, this is actually when they open their museum called the Museum of the Bible, which skeptics call a Christian ministry disguised as a museum. And again, this is like they were going to fill the museum, obviously, with all the stuff they smuggled in. Yeah. <laughs> of course. But they had done so much. They still had plenty to fill it with because also they're happy with forgeries. So like it doesn't matter. They can do whatever horrific thing they want here. There's no end to this. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> they spent so much money when they're so comfortable, like just being like, well, I believe it's that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was saying. They own a craft store. Just make it. Just make it. And then just have your faith tell you that it's real. Why not? And while they're doing this again, they're claiming that this is meant to educate, not evangelize. And everyone's like, we've been in the museum, guy. This is not true at all. And they said it's a public face to the Bible engagement rhetoric. And then there's a private aspect of what it really means. John Fee, historian at Messiah College in Pennsylvania, told AP. And he said debunks the whole notion that this is just a history museum furthered by their beliefs. And they received further backlash from this. The use of Confederate flag and pro-slavery imagery in exhibits about the Bible's role in the Civil War. And it was like, you wanted to put the Bible in the Civil War and you chose the bad side? Yeah. Why would you do? Like, you're you're obviously doing the bad guy thing. Yeah. And you're putting up pro-slavery art. <laughs> Yeah. And like, Jesus Christ, you know what would never feature something like that? The Michael Keaton Museum of Excellence. That guy is firmly anti-slavery. I'm 99.99% sure of that. I don't think he's ever gone on record specifically saying it, but he's given off vibes that lead me to believe that he's against it. Yeah, we don't have proof, but come on, we know. I'm taking this on faith. This is me saying that Michael Keaton came to me in a dream once and he said slavery. Not good. <laughs> Two thumbs down. <laughs> well, that obviously a much better museum that I feel like has to be made now because 2018 now, the Museum of the Bible confirms some of its Dead Sea Scroll fragments are fake and they remove them. And then 2020, a report finds that the entirety of the Dead Sea Scroll collection of the museum was actually forged. And they're just like, <laughs> did a shrug and they're like, oh yeah, I guess I forgot. And like, I do feel like the only person I like in this entire story is the guy that ripped off green by making fake religious objects. Like, good for you, whoever you are. I'm sure that cost him millions. I would love that if it was just like on basic like printer paper, but doing that thing where you burn the edges (laughs) with a lighter (laughs) to make it look old. Crumple it up and rub lotion on it. (laughs) (laughs) It just just says from God. Like you sign each thing God at the bottom. It's all written in English, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) So then here's the next big thing. And we're about to wrap this up because soon after this, it's just let's go to the next stage first, because after this, it's like they defy state mandates and illegally reopen stores and then they're like okay we're gonna close the stores and they're like wink
sink and they reopen some and all the employees are like, we're all have the internet. All of our employees are furious and going on and saying, you're making them work here. And they're like, okay, but this time we're going to close it. Wink. And they keep not doing it forever. Then the last big I'm going to hit is that in March 2020, right before, obviously, the outbreak and they get just increasingly worse, the Green Family announces it will now return another 11,500 antiquities to Iraq on top of the 5,100 from before. Did they not go out to the shed? Like, were they going through the attic? Like, ah, fuck. We left Jesus's bones up here. Damn it. The thing about the statement on this was that, again, this whole time they've been claiming that this isn't religious because it is truly about teaching the history. And Green's explanation for this was, I fell short in not appreciating the importance of the provenance of the items I purchased because I knew little about the world of collecting. (laughs) That's the entire job of a museum, is knowing about the world of collecting. (laughs) Like, there is no low for Hobby Lobby. Every story I read where it's like, okay, well, this can't get worse than that, is like, well, uh, buckle up, because they're about to find a new way to do something monstrously horrific in a way you'd even think they could. The thing is, too, it's like, none of it was creatively evil. It was just so blatantly evil that you're like, nobody's going to do that. (laughs) It wasn't like, it was I found a way to blow up the moon nobody could ever do this before. It was like, what if I were just racist to like everybody? But like really racist and really openly. Look, we started with fucking with a feed the children charity right. and we got worse. So I feel like we can't do any more on that. And I love this segue after something this horrific. So let's get into In Their Defense, where we have to somehow defend Hobby Lobby for being like the worst pieces of shit we've ever talked. Like, again, the one I keep using an example is that like we covered the witch trials. We covered people that set people on fire and I'm like Hobby Lobby's worse Hobby Lobby's, <laughs> Hobby Lobby's worse so in their defense of this piece of shit Hillary any thoughts they're trying to be as bad as Chick-fil-A <laughs> it's this was a secret bet between yeah. Green and Chick-fil-A and they're like who can be worse yeah <laughs> it's one of those billionaire one dollar bets <laughs> I can't imagine like a human being this combination of this evil this stupid and this rich like I feel like one of those things has to negate the possibility of the other too, you know, which is why I feel like the idea of this was planned. It's probably not that unreasonable. An elaborate joke. Yeah. <laughs> when, what do you have? Okay, I can crack this. I can crack this. <laughs> have you guys ever been to a Michaels? <laughs> like, the vibes are off. Like, they sell the exact same thing. I don't know if it's, like, the layout of the stores or the music there, but I don't get nearly as good of vibes in a Michaels. Like, there's a, there's a homey quality to Hobby Lobby. It's like, have you ever, like, been over at the grandmother that you're just like, we don't get along politically, but man, this is a comforting house. I really like how comfortable this house is. That's Hobby Lobby. Like the vibes are good, even though the beliefs in the people are bad. And so that is my defense is that the Michaels just doesn't hit me in the right place when I visit it. It's all the same (laughs) items, but they're just wrong. They're like, I don't know if the order. So that is it. And also we need a plot for Indiana Jones 5, which is coming to theaters. So why not go against these comic booky villains of Hobby Lobby and have him just take out the bullwhip and let's go. It belongs in an actual museum. (laughs) (laughs) I would love it if the next Indiana Jones is him just walking into a Hobby Lobby and being like, what the fuck is this? Are these the Dead Sea Scrolls? Oh, they're not. They're not. We're good. (laughs) In my, in their defense, I think the big thing is 
ease of access that they cover so much. And there's not another store I can go to where I can get a scented candle, forged documents (laughs) and smuggled antiquities. (laughs) Like I've got a Michael's down the street and they'll order some stuff. Like you can ask. I've done that where I'm like, they don't have it in. They're like, no, but we can get one for you. But I'm confident they don't have the Iraqi antiquity connection. And also that's like most of this stuff you can get at black markets, but not the candles. You can get, you can get all of the illegal stuff they're doing. But what if I want to frame the arms that I just illegally bought? And that's where Hobby Lobby has the, like, I just spend a lot of money on this box of 2000 illegal rifles. And you know what? Maybe add some glitter to it. Make it fancy. Put some presentation. Make it a thing. It's a one-stop shop. Popsicle sticks, yarn, St. Peter's mummified penis. All of it's there. I was checking out at a Hobby Lobby once before I knew how evil Hobby Lobby is, but woman, I guess she got caught trying to steal something and somebody just like straight up tackled her on the way out. And the person in line next to me and their only response was, why would you ever steal from Hobby Lobby? Everything's always on sale. <laughs> <laughs> like my other thought too was like, I cannot think of a single item there that costs more than $7. Like <laughs> also tackling somebody for an item stolen at Hobby Lobby. Like, why are you going full Batman? Why are you going full Batman for like, what is certainly just going to be an okay candle or like one of those weird mannequin foam head things that I don't know why they sell. Is it for women? Is that why they sell them? Like, are people building their own mannequins at home is what I'm asking. And like, they couldn't get the heads right. Yeah. So they get the styrofoam ones. I have a lot of thoughts. The heads are the hardest part. You can build the rest of it on your own. And it wasn't a Hobby Lobby employee. It was just somebody. It so was a like, vigilante. <laughs> Honestly, that makes more sense because I feel like Hobby Lobby employees, they can't care. Yeah. They know where they are. But people that shop at Hobby Lobby, despite all of this, oh, they're going to care so much. They are hanging out at Hobby Lobby looking for an opportunity to be the hero. That's that's why they're there. That person tells that story every time they go out to their friends. That person is just like, oh yeah, I stopped a criminal once. So one time years ago, I went to, it was for Christmas, my girlfriend's birthday, but she was writing quite a bit. So I went to an actual pen shop to get her a very nice fountain pen. And there was a guy there who I realized after like five minutes doesn't work there, but this is just his hangout spot. Like he said, I'm going to go get a coffee do you want anything to the guy that did work there? And then I came back a second time later on to get specifics. And he was also there. <laughs> and it was like, this is this guy's hang. Also, a lot of commentary on my pen choice. He was way too involved for a guy that didn't need to be there at all. Was the commentary positive? It was, it was I mean, not surprisingly sexist. What do you say? Not surprisingly. Like, what, what is your opinion on people who sell pins that you're like, oh, you know, pin enthusiasts, right? They're the most misogynistic sons of bitches you're ever going to meet. I hate any woman who has to go to the pin shop because it's the old boys club down there at the pin shop. Yes, if you add two letters, it's penis. I get that, but that's not a reason to assume, Andrew. So I'm picking out like a nice pen for her and he says, well, like even if she doesn't like it, you can just say, look how small and cute it is. And I'm like, obviously, like Irvin's not there, but I'm still going to say she's a writer. She's a good writer. She doesn't care about small and cute. And he doubled down. He said, all women care about small and cute. And I said, she fucking doesn't. And I could see the pen shop owner was like screaming with his eyes for him to just shut up. He's like, you are 
killing my yeah, sale here. He's trying to sell to you, but he also can't put off his best customer. <laughs> yeah. The guy that gets him coffee. <laughs> so he said like, no, no, if she doesn't, she doesn't. And I'm like, yeah, man, I know you're not part of this, but why are you letting this guy hang out here? Like, I know I'm not the first one he's done this to. There's no way that a guy who knows you by first name basis and brings you coffee. This is the very first time he said something incredibly stupid that almost killed a sale. Like, he's the Gilligan of your pen shop. I know you've had something almost go through and this big guy like, wait a second, what if you try stabbing someone? You see how sharp this one is? Why the fuck do we get on pen shops? She was talking about a Hobby Lobby vigilante and you were just like, this just reminded me of a great pen story. <laughs> Everyone's got one. <laughs> we'll all go in a circle. <laughs> so, I have no idea what the point of that was, but yeah, there's my, there's my pen story. Hobby Lobby vigilante. Oh, the guy that just hangs out there for no reason. Like, yes, he was waiting there for his pen opportunity to, <laughs> to find, like, I guarantee he staked out the sharpest ballpoint in that shop. <laughs> and he's like, when something goes down, guy, I know what I'm going to do. Yeah, I hope something goes down. <laughs> I'm just loving this idea of, a, like, the Venn diagram of people who love pins and hate women. And this guy's right there in the middle. Like, it was very strong 19th century male writer vibes where he's just getting, like, super pissed off that Emily Dickinson is better than him. <laughs> women can't write. And they're like, okay, but, like, everything she's done is better than everything you've done. Like that Nathaniel <laughs> Hawthorne shit. And where it's like, all right, man, you're hanging out in this pen shop. It's getting sad. <laughs> I'm going to get a coffee. Can I get you any? <laughs> it will never not be so funny. <laughs> Way too casual. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to go to the nearest <laughs> pen shop and just offer and see how they respond to try and get a gauge of how often he was there. <laughs> that the pen shop owner was like, no, I, I am not surprised by this offer, but no. <laughs> Behind the counter, this guy has 30 cups of coffee from all the guys that just hang out in the pen shop all day. <laughs> I love the idea, too, that this guy, like, thought this was his cheers. <laughs> Why don't you yell Kevin when I walk in? It's like, because it's a fucking pen shop, man. Nobody's yelling names. We don't have chairs. Why are you hanging out here? They didn't. He was leaning. Like, you have to lean here for hours. Like, and not like a comfortable lean either. Like, I can't leave, but I'm tired, so I have to lean. But you could have because you don't work there. This episode is becoming Crafts slash Michael Keaton slash Andrew's one pen shop story. We cover a range. I mean, it's my best pen shop story. I, I'm not going to say it's my one, but it's the best one for sure. <laughs> well, I feel like we covered just about everything. We've literally covered everything. I feel like we have covered everything. So we're going to wrap that. We've got the history of crabs, our personal experience, where it went wrong with Hobby Lobby. Obviously, Michael Keaton and Pens. What if as a plot twist, the vigilante in Hobby Lobby was Michael Keaton? <laughs> <laughs> like, like just doing like really method acting for his next role. I'm sorry. I don't agree with their beliefs, but I have a role and I need to practice. <laughs> Yeah. He's just like, in case you guys haven't known, I am playing Batman again here in a few months and I had to get back into character. Yeah. <laughs> this is immediately one of my all-time favorite episodes. Hillary, we're going to make you a new co-host yeah. here now too, I guess. Like, I get why you got the offer so fast now. Hillary's just going around collecting yeah. podcasts like Infinity Stones. She's just on all of them. One of the things that I dislike most about Twitch comedy shows is that, like, people are, like, being so funny, but they can't hear you laughing. So, like, that stresses me out and I'm like I'm not even telling the jokes yes. and but I, like and so I'll just type like this is making me laugh out loud or like I pro I'm laughing right now 
like uh, just constantly. Hillary, by the way, has been very supportive of my Zoom shows. And every time Hillary is there, I check the chat because yeah, <laughs> that's going to be there. I know when it was a good one. But speaking of Twitch, though, we want to tell people where to find your stuff because you're where is help wanted? I mean, you're doing this nightly now, right? Five nights a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitch.tv slash help wanted PLZ. No spaces. It's very much an Alex DeFranco <laughs> name. <laughs> like I, saw, I was like, oh yeah, this is Alex made this show. Alex, of course, we've had on here too. He's so fantastic. I know you're about to go do your next <laughs> one, so I'll go watch. But Hillary, thank you so much for coming on today. This was some of the most fun we've had. Thank you all for having me. Guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. Help us out so much. We also have Patreon down in the show notes that helps us keep this show going. We're going to be back next week. We hope you join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.